Good morning. It's Wednesday, the 8th of November, and this is Govind Rajathiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's smogged up financial capital. Our top stories and themes for a somewhat slow news day. Middle East tensions have little impact on India, says rating agency Crystal in an exhaustive first research report. West Texas intermediate crude falls below $80 a barrel in a sign that global demand for oil is weak. India's fast-moving consumer goods or FMCG industry reported a 9% year-on-year jump in September quarter sales, says Nielsen IQ, a market research firm. International travel news, Singapore Airlines posts second-highest quarterly record profits. Europe fares set to drop after revenge travel phase seems to end. This is a core report with Govindraj Athiraj. And oil prices are falling. West Texas intermediate crude fell below $80 a barrel for the first time in more than two months, accompanied by a drop in broader financial markets and the dollar strengthened after a US Federal Reserve official said it's too soon to declare victory over inflation. Oil prices went down despite Saudi Arabia and Russia renewing their promises to cut supplies into the end of the year. Though their moves nor the tensions in Middle East have really affected oil prices, the focus has now shifted back to consumption or demand and the lack of sufficient demand. Daniel Hines, a commodity strategist at ANZ Group Holdings, told Bloomberg News that the market is completely discounting any risk of disruption coming from elevated geopolitical risks. Europe's weak economic growth is weighing on manufacturing, cutting demand for diesel and naphtha, according to Wood McKinsey Limited. Back in Indian markets, stocks closed with not much change on Tuesday and tracking Asian markets in turn. The BSE Sensex was down 16 points, that's very marginal, at 64,942 and the Nifty 50 was down just 5 points at 19,407. Both the Nifty 50 and Sensex had risen almost 2% each in the last three sessions following the US Federal Reserve's rate pause and improved rate outlook. Middle East has limited impact on India. Meanwhile, Crystal Ratings has put out the most likely first and detailed economic impact assessment of the Middle East tensions on India, concluding that the impact is negligible at this point. The conflict in the Middle East, confined mainly to the Gaza region now, has caused only negligible disruption in India's trade so far, Crystal has said, adding that some sectors like fertilizers and diamonds, both cut and polished, may see a slight but manageable impact, while for most others, impact will be insignificant. India's trade with Israel is relatively low, accounting for about 1.9% of total exports and just 0.3% of total imports last fiscal. In numbers, India's exports to Israel are at about $8.4 billion and imports are at around $2.3 billion. That's imports into India from Israel. Merchandise exports mainly comprise polished diamonds and petroleum products, including refined hydrocarbons, while imports largely comprise industrial equipment, fertilizers, rough diamonds and precious stones. There is some defense too, but I'm not sure those numbers are showing up here. For domestic diamond polishers, Israel is primarily a trading hub exposed to the country, where less than 5% of total diamond exports from India last fiscal. Additionally, less than 2% of all roughs, that's rough diamonds, imported are from Israel. Israel is a major global producer of muriate of potash, that's MOP, and among the top three countries that India imports from, accounting for about 25% of all MOP imports last fiscal. However, the share of MOP, which is 
a ingredient in other fertilizers or as final product remains low at less than 10% of domestic fertilizer consumption additionally india's ability to source from other countries lowers the supply risk gold prices have of course risen though the middle east conflict may not be the only reason nevertheless since early october gold prices have surged 13 to 15% to over 60000 rupees per 10 kilogram a price point that's important to note particularly during festival season Crystal has also worked out that the linked impact of oil prices rising but since Brent crude is below $84 a barrel and the Texas intermediate is below $80 a barrel there is no immediate cause for concern and that is really at this point a rise in crude oil prices obviously affects many things including aviation automotive paints tires cement chemicals synthetic textiles and flexible packaging but that analysis could i think wait a little And finally Crystal Ratings does say that any spread of the conflict leading to disruption of operations at major ports could have some impact. Consumer goods products do well in rural India. India's fast moving consumer goods industry reported a 9% year on year jump in September quarter sales and an 8.6% rise in volumes reflecting a positive consumption pattern pan India. according to market research agency NIQ or Nielsen IQ rural markets it said are showing signs of recovery with consumption picking up during the September quarter compared to a year ago period Nielsen said on Tuesday adding that urban markets are maintaining a stable rate of consumption growth also according to wire agency reports rural markets according to that report showed continued recovery during the quarter with sales volumes rising 6.4% from 4% in the previous June quarter Rural market volumes had fallen 2 to 5% in the preceding four quarters. Now, slower price increases, a decline in unemployment and the government's decision to cut cooking gas prices improved consumer willingness to spend, said Satish Pillai, managing director at NIQ India. Unemployment eased in September to 7.1%, but then remember it rose again in October to over 10% according to data from the Center for Monitoring Indian Economy. This of course points to some of the conflicting numbers that we are seeing from different sources but I'll come to that in a moment. An increasing consumer spending on discretionary categories like personal care and home care products suggests that rural consumers are beginning to spend on items beyond essentials. Now while these numbers must be accurate some of the signals are slightly conflicting as I mentioned earlier for example while uneven monsoons have affected sentiment and consumption in some areas in other areas like two wheelers they're indeed picking up. going by numbers just released from the automobile sector so one thing is clear that the pandemic effect has largely ended and all demand and consumption numbers can now be understood and must be seen in isolation or clearly in comparison to pre-pandemic numbers which of course goes back to 2019-20 anyway a slightly different indicator here e-commerce major amazon india on tuesday said its 2023 festival sale is the best in 13 years of operations in the country fueled by strong demand Online sales by the e-commerce industry during this festive season are expected to witness 18 to 20% growth to reach 90,000 crore according to market research from Red Sear Strategy Consultants quoted in the Business Standard. The government-backed ONDC or Open Network for Digital Commerce has also reached a new high in retail orders mostly for food, beverages and groceries during this festive season reports said. The Amazon director for consumer electronics, personal computing and large appliances said that this is the best year or festival sale in every parameter amazon also said that it did not find any slowdown in rural buying indicating a revival in demand which is facing sluggishness post covid so 
if I look at the previous data points from Nielsen and what Amazon is saying and what, let's say, automobile dealers have been saying in the last two days, marketeers are really at an interesting juncture because they are benefiting from festival season spikes. Remember that this is an extended festival season and at the same time wondering what's going to happen towards the end of the month when the festival season would have ended. I'd love to answer that question today, but I cannot and would have to wait till the third to fourth week of November. Onion prices shoot up. So what is clear right now is that onion prices are shooting up once again. So after tomatoes, it's now onions. Onion prices have risen nearly 75% in the first week of November compared to the previous month. An IDFC First Bank economist, Gaura Sengupta, told the Economic Times that daily food prices from the National Horticulture Board is indicating a 11% month-on-month rise in onion prices in October, countered, interestingly enough, by a 9.3% decline in tomato prices. Potato prices are also showing a mild decline in October, but overall vegetable prices on a consumer price inflation-weighted basis are showing a mild positive increase on a month-on-month basis. So now, onions have a 0.64% weight in the retail inflation basket. Tomatoes have a slightly lower 0.57% weight. So between onions and tomatoes, onions are the ones we need to be watching a little more closely. However, economists contend that a repeat of the July to August period when inflation rose beyond the Reserve Bank of India's upper band target of 6% is not possible. What they mean is that a situation where, for example, something similar to tomato prices going up to 300 rupees a kilogram is unlikely. Economists also said that the disruption in supply isn't as steep as it was in the case of tomatoes. Seasonally, onion prices tend to rise in October and November and then decline in December or January, reported the Economic Times. Now, Nomura economists said that the government has swung into action announcing export duties on onions, minimum export prices and offloading buffer stocks, although prices are yet to cool. Now, this is something, and when I say this, I mean government action we've also seen, of course, in rice, wheat, and sugar. So, despite falling prices, food inflation did average 6.6% in September, and a stress in onion prices could take or keep food prices a little high. We will be looking out for October inflation data on the 13th of November. Delhi pollution levels are still high. Citizens of Delhi continue to battle severe pollution, but the Supreme Court, the highest court of the land, came on their side by ordering authorities in the states surrounding New Delhi on Tuesday to stop farmers burning crop residue, which could contribute to 40 to 50% of total pollution levels of particulate matter in these months. Air quality dips every year ahead of winter as calm and cold winds trap pollutants from sources including vehicles, industries, construction dust and agriculture waste burning, Reuters reported. The Supreme Court has issued similar orders in past years, but these orders have had limited effect as state authorities are not able to control the burning despite fines and sometimes due to the farmers' hostility towards officials. The problem clearly is in the last mile. Delhi authorities have already stopped local construction, closed primary schools till November 10th and imposed restrictions on use of vehicles next week through the use of the odd-even scheme. We direct the state government of Punjab and adjacent states to Delhi, Haryana, Rajasthan and Uttar Pradesh to ensure that crop residue burning is stopped forthwith, a Supreme Court judge said and Reuters reported. The farmers in Punjab and Haryana, these are the neighbouring states, usually burn crop stubble left behind after rice is harvested in late October or early November to quickly clear their fields before planting wheat crops. And now moving on to airline news. 
Singapore Airlines shrugged off rising fuel costs to deliver its second biggest quarterly profit on record as demand kept airfares high, reported Bloomberg. Net income in the second quarter through September climbed 27% from a year earlier to 707 million Singapore dollars or 522 million US dollars, the carrier said on Tuesday. Revenue rose 4.3% to 4.7 billion Singapore dollars. So, demand remained strong in that rebound from COVID, including low-cost units Scoot, and Singapore Airlines passenger traffic was up 42% from a year earlier, and group capacity is expected to reach about 92% of pre-pandemic levels on average by next month. Fuel costs are rising for Singapore Airlines like the rest. The price of oil soared about 28% during the quarter since jet fuel is one of the biggest costs for all airlines. Singapore Airlines said its net fuel costs rose 13%, but passenger load factor or PLF, an indicator of how full planes are, was at almost 89%, up two percentage points from the same period last year, according to Bloomberg. More in aviation, you could breathe a sigh of relief for now. Flying to Europe in 2024 without spending a fortune is in the cards after a long stretch of sky-high prices, says the Wall Street Journal. The report refers to flights to and fro from the United States, but the low fare environment, if it kicks in, should benefit India too. But a reminder, it's 2024 we're talking about. But on the other hand, 2024 is just a month and a half away, or a little more. The reason is that airlines have added new routes between the United States and Europe and have announced plans to increase flights on some routes next spring and summer. The added capacity means travellers can get a break from the run of high airfares in the past couple of years, says the Wall Street Journal. And also, deals now exist that didn't before. And industry watchers say they expect more to come. Some airfares stand now at or below pre-pandemic levels, according to a recent analysis of flight prices by Thrifty Traveller. Brooking premium seats with miles for flights next spring and summer also looks to be getting easier. And let's say another sign of sagging demand. And before I go, here's an excerpt from my conversation with Satish Pai, Managing Director of Hindalco Industries, which featured on our Saturday to Sunday weekend edition or the Core Report weekend edition. We speak about all aspects of aluminum, its recyclability and copper as well. But the interesting thing is that Hindalco, for example, ships around four and a half million tons of aluminum and roughly 2.3 million tons, that's roughly 60%, is actually recycled. So which means that the aluminum you use is actually part of a circular economy. What you used earlier is now come back to you to use again, and the cycle would continue. It's mostly cans and so on, but it's also soon going to be things like automotive, you know, as industries figure out how to recycle more and bring back that same material to you via, of course, recycling. And which, of course, is another interesting angle, which is the logistics of it. Remember that the Coke can or any can that you use or a MacBook, or a car that aluminum has to get picked up and taken back to the plant where it will get recycled and then come back to you eventually. So all in all, very interesting. Do check this conversation out. So when you say largest, you mean in, in India or India plus worldwide. world? Yeah, Worldwide. In India, actually, there's hardly any aluminum used. So through our subsidiary Novellis, we are the largest. So when we actually started out five years ago, it was driven by the cafe regulations in the US to reduce emissions. So which is why they were trying to lightweight the cars and the big super heavy duty F-150s and all, they were using aluminium. So that was the driver. Now, when I sign our internal contracts, 90% of them are for electric vehicles and less than 10 are for IC engines. 
So it's been amazing that in a very short period of time, two to three years, majority of our aluminium now goes to electric vehicles. And why? Because the battery is so heavy that people don't realize battery vehicle of the same size of an ice weighs 25% more. So everybody's trying to lightweight to get that 25% back. So more aluminium, more than double of what goes into an ice engine, goes in an EV-based automobile. Right. If I would ask you, I mean, so obviously EV is the big thing and we'll talk about it more in a moment. But from a client composition, how much would have EV been, let's say, six or seven years ago versus what it is today? Or let's say before EV came in. Before EV came in, then 99.9% of our customers on the auto side were the conventional auto companies. And if you look at the market end, solar panel makers were not a, a market for us. The battery, I mean, a lithium-ion battery uses copper foil and aluminum foil as a cathode and anode. So none of these customers were existed today, that time. I mean, we were... I think 80% can, beverage can, which has been there for a long time. And the housing, you know, uh, uh, facades, doors, windows. But suddenly today, if you look at it, more than 20% of our market is autos, primarily driven by electric vehicles. And then all these solar panel makers and all are starting to use more and more aluminum extrusions and all that. So it's quite amazing how the client profile for us has dramatically changed. So you're saying 20% of the aluminium, the final product that you sell goes to the auto sector, auto sector. and the other 80%, would you break that up? It's 60% going to beverage packaging, largely cans, and then a large part is going to industrials. I mean, all white goods, all computers, all high-end phones, all multi-story buildings, facades, it's all aluminium. Right. And what's changing in this in terms of the way people are consuming the same metal? Or the types of metal. I mean, I'm sure the metal too is evolving the way people are asking for it. For example, windows, I would think, were less unfinished maybe a decade ago. And perhaps architects and designers are more demanding of the way or the kind of metal that they use or the kind of aluminum they use. So I think there are a couple of things. One is the weight to strength ratio. So where aluminum plays off is one third the weight of a steel, but at the same time can be stronger. So for if you're going to do anything that requires strength and is light, then you're going to go for aluminium versus the conventional steel that they used to use. So that is one very important driver. The second thing is the look and the aesthetics. So if you see, I don't know, an Apple phone or a, a computer which has got an aluminium case, because it's coated or anodized, the finish you can get gives you so very high-end goods they tend to go for aluminium as well. So there are some of these things. And then the other part, which is quite amazing, is the recyclability of aluminium. So you can recycle aluminium infinitely. So in the current sustainability-driven environment, people are coming to aluminium because like a, take a can of Coke, you could be 90% recycled metal, heading towards 100%. So that it's also is one of these drivers. They're saying, okay, I'm using something which is made from recycled metal. So soon you will have a car that will be 100% recycled metal. So that is a big demand these days. Yeah, and I'll come to cars in a second. So of, let's say, the 100 tons of aluminum you produce, how much of it is recycled and how much of it is, in an absolute sense, coming back to you? So we roughly produce and ship about 4.5 million tons of aluminum. 
And today, 2.3 million tons of aluminum is recycled. So we are roughly 60% recycled today. Now in cans, it's 85%. In autos, it's about 20-30%. So really, we are working on how to recycle more in auto. That's it for me for now. The link is in the description below. And uh, look out for our core report weekend conversations and interviews, which are usually longer and dive into issues much more deeply. Have a great day ahead. This was the core report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in. That is www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you, including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the Thank you for listening.